podcast brought to you by team Corker. I am again stoked to be on the pod with a very very special guest. Undeniably I have followed Lauren Fleshman and her beautiful brilliant raw and honest career for a long time. She was a runner that we all look to. She was a partner in a nutrition brand called Picky Bars with her former partner and also another professional runner. And what made them so unique was the commitment to be so human. And that meant cheeky, it meant relatable, it meant committed. What many people will know Lauren for is being the professional athlete with Nike who stood up against posing the way Nike wanted her to pose and being a face for what women really can be in sport, not to mention for being the one who would walk right into the CEO's office and challenge him with why he was sharing marketing material the way he was. So that happened, and we all know those stories from the beautiful land of the internet. The beautiful land of the internet then became a conduit for Lauren to share things like retreats and music, her writing endeavors. She was so generous with the people she learned from, and you could count on her. You could count on her voice for showing up online in really true, raw, and honest ways of what it meant to be a woman in the world, a mother, and so many other labels. I didn't share this with Lauren on the pod, but I'll never forget when she and Jesse were in Kona. Jesse was racing Kona, and she was working at Picky Bar's tent like no one else. I think they even popped up a tent on a leaky drive, perhaps undercover. And of course, they were the most sought after tent. Everyone wanted a piece of the Lauren and Jesse picky joy. And they always brought it. Lusai. So decades later, here she is, New York Times bestselling author. The book, Good for a Girl, is one we all anxiously awaited in our hands. And it has far exceeded anyone's expectations. Not that we had any. Not that we would ever doubt that a syllable from Lauren wasn't going to be worthy of us hanging on to by a thread, anxiously awaiting the next sentence that she'd string together. Yet this book is pure gold. And we've included in the show notes the other podcasts that you can listen to, to hear about different aspects of the writing journey, of the book, of the times that Lauren speaks to in the book. And my goal, my hope in my conversation with Lauren was to touch on a few different aspects or avenues that she hadn't yet shared on other podcasts. I did my best. Our time was short. She is nothing but a true delight. And really, what an honor, like I said, to have the chance to riff with you, Lauren. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy this one. I just need to say, Lauren frickin' Fleshman, thank you for being on the pod. It is such a freaking honor and what a time in life to get you on the mic. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it. Well, my intro aside, I need to know how you would introduce yourself to the world these days. And so on your terms with your language, who's Lauren Fleshman? Well, a retired professional runner who formerly organized my whole life around sport and achievement in that world. That is a writer, a parent, and a passionate social activist, mm. I would say. Yeah. What wakes you up presently 
in the world of making a difference socially for matters that matter to you? Like things that wake me up at night? No, (laughs) (laughs) well, I was trying to think of it from the positive lens of like, you're fighting for so much right now. And there's so much in the world worthy of fighting of that I know is on your heart. And yet I think there's something positive to acknowledging social activism that comes from like, I'm waking up in the morning on purpose for this. Yeah. I think that having my book finished and feeling really proud of it and then having enough personal messages and feedback that it's doing some of the work I want it to do, that I've wanted it to do, it's actually happening in people's minds and hearts. It's shifting things in people that read it. And so I think that gets me really excited to wake up in the morning because my suspicion that of how story is the key to connecting hearts and minds with statistics and data, that that's how we get to that next level of caring about those things because the data has already existed on so many important social issues. But what gets people to do something? So I feel like, okay, I've provided a tool that can help do that. And now I just need to try to get as many people to read it as possible. And that gives me real clarity about how to spend my time. Mm, So clear. I mean, I read that book in 24 hours and our sweet mutual friend, Lindsay Corbin and I were like, we both couldn't go to bed at night until we finished the book. <laughs> and then I realized that across the World Wide Web, everybody was saying, you made us stay up past our bedtime because it was like the book you just <laughs> couldn't put down. So mission achieved. And I love that you're like, this is one stepping stone. What was it for you that made it hard to put down? Like what was grabbing you? Hmm. I love this. Well, I'm going to tangent for a hot second and include in the show notes, all of the podcasts that I have listened to that you have done so that people know <laughs> that these are all the places to go and get content. And one of the best pieces of you being a podcast guest is you always beautifully turn it to the people that are interviewing you. <laughs> and we're like, we want to know so badly about you. And you're like, so a question for you. And I was like, she won't do it. And she caught me. And (laughs) the truest thing I can say, and again, I know I'm not alone in this, is that I flipped to the back of the book to read your acknowledgements. And then I caught myself reading almost from like the back forward and then from the forward back. And honestly, I could pick it up in the middle of the book and there was just like a chapter that would grab at my heart and you don't want to put it down. I want to commend that your first chapter basically has you hooked. It's like hook, line and sinker for me. I read the first chapter. I was like, I guess I'm not doing anything else with my day today. And I'll finish this book. (laughs) (laughs) And that is so, so powerful. And I don't know if that totally answers your question. I just think there's something really special about a book that can literally be picked up at any page and not make Mm -hmm. you want to put it down. And bravo. Thank you. Bravo. (laughs) In the world of sport, we talk about our relationship with coaches and you haven't been shy in talking about your relationship with your book writing coach and what it was like to have a team. And I'm wondering if you can tell us the story of that relationship, because I don't know if many Mm -hmm. people know about book writing coaches or the relationship with your team and pulling it together. And I'm like, did you intentionally write a book that we wouldn't be able to put down? Is that what you were going for? Is that (laughs) what happened? Yeah. I mean, that was the goal. I wanted it to be propulsive. I wanted people to feel like they were dropped into my shoes and going for a run with me through the sports system. And I wanted people who could relate and people who couldn't, I wanted to make it easy for people, especially who couldn't relate to like, 
be shown things through my eyes because I've had that as a reader in books about lives dramatically different from my own. But you can't tell me about those lives in statistics. I have to feel like I'm in, and fiction can do this beautifully, right, as well. So I, I wanted to do that. I felt like that's how you get people's nervous systems activated. And then if they're on a run with you and they feel the momentum, I'm putting momentum into the reader on the issues I care about too or helping activate their previous momentum. It's hard to hold on to, right? There's so many of us already passionate about these things. Maybe there's been a period of our life where we tried to do something about it or help someone or help ourselves. And then life moves on and there's new problems, right? And we have to pay attention to those. And so, yeah, it was like, how can I write this in a way that gets a lot of people, as many people as I can at once re-engaged in this? Hmm. Okay, Lauren, I exist to lower my nervous system functionality at all times and elevating my nervous system is of no value. (laughs) And you're like, (laughs) I intentionally want to jack your nervous system. I'm like, oh gosh, (laughs) you did it. (laughs) Okay. When did your writing coach come into play? And you are very open about the journey that writing this book was for you. And yeah. Like, did it happen on the time frame you wanted it to? Who did you have to pull in when to get across the finish line? Um, well, early on, I have some writing friends that have written books mm. that live in town, Lily McCullough and Michelle Hamilton, and my friend Marianne Elliott, who's in another country, in New Zealand. So I had them, I had talked to them about just like, what's involved here? What am I going to need to do? What are the steps? So that was really early on. And then it was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and do those steps. But what I found out was that I was having trouble doing the steps because there were so many of them. It was such a long timeline. I'd never done it before. The imposter voice was so strong. I knew I was writing about things that I had to like mine into my former trauma, really question if I was right or not about my assessment Mm -hmm. of things facing down potentially being a woman with an opinion on the internet, which is not really a safe place to be. And so each step of writing it, I was like thinking ahead to those things and it would make it harder to do the day-to-day work. And I found that I just wasn't doing it. Like I was just like paralyzed and my editor had deadlines and I just was missing them. Yeah. And then it just got harder and harder to do it. So I hired Jen Loudon to be my book coach and she has written multiple books and she's a writing coach and she hosts retreats and she's just like extremely experienced and no nonsense. And I knew I could trust her to get me out of my head and just start getting the work done, which is what I did as a coach for my athletes. It's like, if you're too fixated on the Olympic trials and it's October and you have nine months ahead of you, you're going to freak out at every little injury or missed day from sickness. Cause you're so worried about this big thing in the distance. It's like, you have to break it into smaller steps. And so that's what Jen did for me. She helped me break it into smaller steps. She helped me accept the messiness of the first 75% of the book writing process. And I really didn't want to accept that. Like, I didn't want to accept that I would need to spend so much time writing garbage. I would never want anyone to see when I write blogs. That's not what my writing is like. It's usually pretty good the first time it comes out and then it gets a little bit better. And this was just not like that. This was just like so much absolute garbage, like unreadable garbage and repetitive and just like navel gazing and just because you're like working through it you're wrestling through it in real time and the only way to process it and figure out where you want to go is to write through it so yeah I was anyway Jen helped with that 
And then once I got an outline down with her, once I got a first draft down with her, then I was able to engage more with my editor because I had like a body of work to work with. And then my editor, Emily Cunningham, was able to go through it and say, here, you've said this 17 times. And the best place for that is actually way back here near the end. So you need to figure out a way to build tension without that over here, 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 and here. Or you have too much scientific research in this section and not enough on menstruation, or (laughs) you really sound annoying in this part of the book. (laughs) Like you got to work through some of your emotions around this subject so that you can deliver the message with the same gravity that you do with other sections in the book. So like, I couldn't have done any of that without her expertise. And I mean, that's why editors are there. They help you see what you can't see. Then I had to revise it all with that in mind. And I didn't really need my book coach after the first section, except for the occasional like, hey, I just want to let you know where things are going. And she would encourage me and just keep me believing, you know? Mm. Yeah, totally. I love that because I honor what a feat it is to write a book and to write a New York Times bestselling book, no less, is incredible. And with that also, as you say, went through moments of messiness. I hear some self-deprecating like navel gazing. And I'm like, Lauren, I don't think you could string navel gazing sentences together. However, some of those navel gazing sentences to you, you might not have wanted in the book. And I just wonder if there are other times or endeavors or spaces in your life that you've also felt that paralyzing feeling, which sounds like to me evoked procrastination towards something you were really interested and very passionate about doing, have you seen it come up anywhere else in your life? Or was this like a first lived experience for you? It's been a theme my whole life of perfectionism Mm. is what it really comes down to. And when you read my book, you can see where those seeds of perfectionism got planted as a kid and how they got attached to, it wasn't like, I just wanted to be good at things for the sake of being good at them, but also Mm. to be loved. Like Mm -hmm. it was associated with the better I am at something, the more lovable I am. And Mm. somehow it will bring me safety, security, all these bigger, bigger things that are more closely tied to identity. And so in school, I was always procrastinating until the last minute, the more important a project was, the more I would put it off because they would have high stakes. And then I would find myself worried about doing it wrong. So I'd, I like had a couple of times in high school where I just like missed the day of school, quote, sick when the big paper was due. And then I was up all night on the last day, getting it done and turning it in a day late. And I asked for extensions in college multiple times. Like I've just always wrestled with this. And then I think as an athlete, it shows up in my book in the chapter where I stop and walk at the U S championships. It's that once my identity was so tied and the stakes were so high to winning, I mean, I guess stopping and walking is a way of putting off the finish line, right? Like avoiding failure at all costs being the one that takes yourself out of the game instead of actually being beaten. And that's what I was trying to do in the book, essentially. is like, I think mm. taking myself out of the game by just not getting it written, like that's the safest thing to do is just not write the book. Mm. Oh, gulp. That feels so human and so honest. And it's one thing to acknowledge the perfectionist in you. And it's another thing to share that and write about. It's like the most anti-perfectionist thing to do is to write about the journey. <laughs> yeah. of being no, that's part of my, that's yeah. part of my 12 step program <laughs> of recovering perfectionism. I would love to free other people from that. I mean, yeah. that's another part of the book's purpose is like, yeah. there are things in us stopping us from changing in ways that will benefit us in our community. 
us getting in our own way. I had to fight really hard to learn what those things were that were the ways I was getting in my own way. Some of the things in the book are things on the outside getting in my way. And some of them come from inside myself. Yeah. I think it feels almost, well, I want to make a broad statement. I could be very wrong, but as athletes, it's easier to identify. It can feel a little bit more binary, you know, walking, stopping. It is a very Mm -hmm. binary action. And yet I love that it's also, you're like, well, in school, it looked like this or in relationships, it looked like this and it can look so many different ways. And I share this because I think if you're listening to this podcast, there's value in all of us seeing small reflections of our own selves, either giving up, procrastinating, being paralyzed and knowing that like, there's always one more step. There's a coach, there's a team, there's a neighbor, there's someone else. I love that sense of hope. And I think you've injected that in so many runners and so many athletes for so long. And the book is now just sort of this tangible, I can read this and know it's also possible. I wanted to ask about your kids and yourself as a parent, when you allude to childhood And I'm mindful that children are also special in their own ways and their own human beings. So whatever direction you're comfortable and willing to go without consent of your two remarkable children, which is how do you relate as a parent? You know, you've just gone through this journey of telling your story from your childhood. And now when you look at your children, does anything come up for you consciously of like, how can I be the parent to these kids that perhaps might not feel some of the feelings that you felt or evoke less perfectionism? Yeah, I think about it all the time. I think that like people will talk about how parenting children can also be reparenting yourself. You Mm -hmm. get this other chance to work with your inner child. And so your kid brings things to the surface for you and you want to react in a historical way. And then you're like, oh, actually, I know more now. I can see how this has impacted my life. I'm like so grateful I've done therapy and a lot of reflecting and trying to figure this stuff out so I can not repeat a lot of the things. I'm still Mm going to screw up. I really don't want them to connect success with love. Super Mm -hmm. important to me. And I don't think my parents wanted that either for me. I think that Mm -hmm. there were enough messages from society and I think they were encouraging. My dad really wanted to encourage me. And I do think a lot of very successful people that I've seen in the world in different industries have that ghost inside them that they're actually searching for love and feeling like enough. And if going really far the other direction and making sure my kids feel like enough leads to them not being quote successful or something, (laughs) whatever, that is something that I'm comfortable risking. I don't want them to have to work quite as hard to return to themselves. I'd like them to Mm. stay with themselves for their whole life, ideally. Oh, that's a mic drop. I'd like you to stay with yourself for your whole life, ideally. What a wish. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful statement. I'm here for that. Let's write that on everyone's heart. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Stay with yourself. I'm hitting the pause button on this sweet episode to tell you about something that you might like. Our newsletter. We call it The Corkboard. It has all things juicy, whether you are looking to keep in touch between episodes or find out more about our coaching, development, or hot new jobs that we're working on. The link is in our show notes. Your inbox is sacred and your time is too. So now let's get back to the episode. Okay, I'm going to revert back to the book, you know, the journey of running with you. And I'm going to say like running with you through your, I mean, evolution, but also through your ages. So it was really interesting to read about high school fleshmen and then university runner fleshmen mm-hmm. and then outside of school professional runner 
And I'm wondering when you look back on those eras of you, do you have anything specifically that you would say to high school freshman fleshman? <laughs> fleshman the freshman, that was my nickname. I think I did a lot of things really well. I think I held on to myself really well during that time. And in the book, I'm introducing you to the forces that are pulling people away from themselves, but I'm mostly holding on to myself, but it starts to feel tenuous. Mm-hmm. Like I could lose myself. I see other people doing it. And then in college that begins to build more. Right. So I think I would just say you're doing the right thing. Like listen to DeLong. The big mm-hmm. picture is the most important thing. I know he means, means everything to you and you trust him now. And as you get older, you will start to wonder if his wisdom is as important as your college coach or someone with more accolades and industry recognition. But it turns out the guy in Canyon Country with the Oakleys and the buzz cut was right. Like he, he knew. That's what I would tell her. What I would tell my teammates of that time would be a little bit different or how I would counsel them more to like the typical physiological and societal things that they would be experiencing going through a normal puberty timeline, which if I didn't, I was super delayed. Hmm. Okay. Wait, there's one more piece I wanted to touch on there before we go in a different direction. And that was something that hit my heart was your recovery of your friendship with Kara and what it was like to make a phone call and say, I was a jerk. And what can it look like? And I think there's so much in that as adults. And I think, you know, the story of forgiveness, the story of like who I was in that moment and what it means to not just like forgive, but create a whole new future of love and friendship. What was that like? And would you be open to sharing a little bit of that? Yeah, I think if I hadn't joined the Wazal group and been in a space where I felt safe I felt humbled that there was still a lot to learn. And I felt more aware of the types of social issues that pit women against each other. And at Wazelle, I was in this environment that was doing the opposite. It was like, how do we break down as many things that have been keeping us apart? How do we remove the things other people are trying to stick between us? Because we're more powerful together. And these spaces we can create are hugely impactful for ourselves and others. So Kara was the one, the person that, I had the most drama with in my heart from my past, the most hurt and the version of me that was jealous of missing the team and her making the team and whatever stories I had done to make her a villain in my story. I had to be humble and be like, I was like making all of that up as a way to make myself feel better about not making the Olympic team. (laughs) And if she hadn't wanted to join the Wazel team, I don't know that I ever would have reflected on that to that degree. Mm-hmm. I probably always would have kept a little bit of a safe distance in the mm-hmm. running world. And, or maybe I would have realized and grown up still, but wouldn't have the courage to talk to her about it. The Wazel environment made me brave of like, okay, we can't be teammates unless we talk about this. So I'm just going to talk about it and we're going to get it all out on the table and we're going to see if we can move forward. And we did, and we have way more in common than I ever realized. And like, she's someone I have supreme respect for. I think of everyone in the sport, she's probably had the most risk and the most personal toll for her activism on her health and, and her psyche and everything else. And she's like so dedicated to Mm. the community and to fairness and the future being better. So yeah, I'm glad Mm. for the humility of aging and (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, the human journey. I don't think you've necessarily touched on this in your book yet. I can't help but ask. You did mention your work with therapists and the beautiful, essential relationship that hopefully most of us have with therapists. Is there anything else that you have done to bring out this work of self-development, be it like retreats, journaling, other books, other courses, like where has your desire to continue to evolve come from? Have you used anything to support that journey for yourself? Yeah, I mean, therapy for sure. And then following the work of people who rethink paradigms, Mm. like I just view everything in our world as a work in progress. And even as a science person, science has its place in my life of like, we need facts, but facts change over time. Things mm. would be chaotic if we didn't have any, even when we acknowledge they're temporary until new research comes out. I think I just try to stay in this plane of like, we don't really know what we're doing here. We're taking our best guess. If a way we're doing things is creating a lot of harm, we should re-examine the way we're doing things. Like people like Brene Brown, when it comes to you know shame and I mean, everything Brene Brown does, frankly, like she's been massively influential to me. Esther Perel on love and relationships and eroticism and just like thinking on another level about how we do love, how we do relationship. And now that Jesse and I are separating and ending our romantic partnership, like reading books like Conscious Uncoupling, like are there better ways that people can evolve and make changes in their life that maintain respect and kindness and not just continuing to like rehash the same old story we're taught about what separating should look like or divorce should look like and, or even what marriage should look like. A happy marriage, it can look a lot of different ways too. So mm-hmm. some people yeah. really like scripts and that brings them a lot of comfort. And I have become a person that is only comfortable when I'm challenging the scripts and making sure that I'm choosing the things that I do and I'm not regurgitating other people's choices that are based in some questionable things like white supremacist patriarchy, for example. (laughs) Basic. (laughs) Yes. To that point, I'm curious, you mentioned at the beginning what it means to be a woman with a voice on the internet. And I wonder, you know, in sharing your relationship with Jesse, I mean, frankly, anything with your family, with sport, what has that relationship been like for you? Meaning your relationship with the internet, with an audience of not everyone are your nearest and dearest friends. And I think it's very interesting. It's like, I don't need your opinion on this or that. And yet once you become who you are now, I think people really like to share their opinions. And I'm curious how that has been for you. I think it's mostly been really good. I got advice on the internet a few years ago from somebody that was like, just block people. You don't have to have your page be a place of free speech debate of opposing sides. It's your social media feed. And I do, like if somebody's disrespectful, I block them. I just block mm-hmm. them. If somebody seems like they don't actually care about my well-being as a person, they can disagree with me. But if they are communicating in a way that doesn't show they think of me as a real human being, what will happen if I don't block that person is they are then capable of seeing my stuff, reposting it to people who care even less about me, who then the trolls just pile on. And so like, I feel like part of the reason I have so few 
truly negative, hurtful people in my feed is because of my blocking policy. Just like they can't share my stuff to other people like them. So it's just pretty curated at that point. And then I enjoy other people's social media. Like I like it when other people are vulnerable about their lives and I don't expect people to share every part of themselves. I'll take what they want to share and I'll take the Mm -hmm. things I like from it and I'll leave the rest behind. And I do benefit from other people's stuff. And so it feels natural to also share. But then the flip side is, yeah, if you're going through a big life transition, like Jesse and I deciding to end our romantic partnership was something we've talked about for a long time, really. And like, it was hanging over us, posting it online. Like we felt like, well, why do we even have to do that? Like, I wish we could just not do that. There's so many people in the world that use Instagram casually and don't feel like they have to make an announcement. But because we do live publicly and people feel they know our relationship, they will continue to assume our relationship is as it always has been unless we announce it. And so Mm -hmm. then announcing it is really for us because then what's really going on matches people's perceptions. And then we don't have to bear the burden of the disconnect of people's Mm -hmm. perceptions versus our reality. So at first we were resistant to it. And then we were like, okay, this actually is good. This is helpful to us, but it is strange. (laughs) Like it's still like a little bit strange to have this whole other like channel of your life. There's like your life. And then you're like, oh yeah. And then there's this channel of my life, which is the public facing part. And I can't just neglect that because when it is out of sync, it creates discord and disharmony Mm -hmm. in me. And that's a burden. And I want it to remain like an open flowing space. Yeah. I just had this image of like a train on another track and you're living the train on your track and you're like, ah, there's this train and it's like leaving the station and people are like on that train. And I'm like, but it's not my train. Can I just help that train know what's happening? And I think your integrity of your voice, your heart, I mean, frankly, even your podcast with Jesse, where you were so open about what was happening each week, you know, you created these windows into your life. And I think it's really powerful to remember that you and anyone on the internet for that matter does not owe anyone on the internet anything <laughs> that's like a period end of yes sentence. <laughs> end of sentence exactly <laughs> and it's a beautiful thing so it's like thank you for writing the story sharing the story of all of it of the journey that it was to write the book of the journey of your relationship of you know what you choose to wake up in the morning to fight for And you share that with us and you share in a way that's like, here's my voice and my truth. And I'm along for the ride on your train too. And I think it's so special and it's not lost on the emotional load that you carry to be so vulnerable and so honest. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Oh gosh. I hate that we're out of time. And I want (laughs) to ask you two questions. (laughs) And one question felt really powerful from like a timelining perspective in the book. And that was my heart really resonated with the time in life that you had just bought a house in Bend. The economy was in a state of turmoil. You weren't sure what was next. Are you going to start making picky bars in your kitchen? Like it's a new business. It's a new house. It's economic turmoil. I really fast forward to this moment that we're in right now when, you know, I'm in Canada, Lauren, and interest rates are through the roof. It's a wild time to buy houses. People are losing their jobs. I saw so many similarities to sort of this 15 year 14 year time window. And to know that you are exactly where you are right now. And some things have been incredible and other things have been enormous. And some have been perhaps heart wrenching and beautiful. 
that seed, it's like, when you look back on that time, Lauren, are you grateful you bought the house? Are you grateful you hung in on the journey of starting a business? Or are there feelings of like, you know what, I would have done that differently then. And I'm plugging this question with some optimism to be like, can you tell us that if we've just bought a house or just started a business (laughs) in 2023, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say it'll be okay for everyone. And I I do think when you stretch the timeline out long enough, I would say more or less, yes, right. There are people really struggling on a whole other level than what we're talking about right now, obviously, but I had friends that bought the house when we bought the house and they, they lost the house and now it's been enough time for them to get their credit back and get back on their feet and they're okay. And that's just a sample of people I know. But like, I didn't lose the house and it did create massive amounts of anxiety. I wish I hadn't bought the house in the sense that I had to live through that anxiety, but I did rebound and I came out the other side and it's okay. I lived through it, but yeah, we're in another tough time. Like you said, anyone out there who's in that position, like it just is what it is. There will be times that you nail the timing and there'll be times when you're like gritting your teeth going, oh shit, I got to hold on times you have to start over. And I don't have an experience with multiple recessions, but one thing that came out of that was it was a time of people re-examining how they're spending their time and like willing to try new things, willing to experiment and even like an urgency behind experimenting and tapping mm-hmm. into your creativity and stuff. And Picky Bars was the result of that. Wazelle was similarly a result of that. Like it was a little baby company during the recession and there are opportunities, things shift in times of complexity like this. And mm-hmm. just pay attention if you can pay attention to what's shifting and, and see what aligns with you. And there may be a totally new path opening in the coming couple of years that you never could have predicted five years ago, but not all shifts are bad. Yeah. Not all life changes are bad. I think you said that yes. too. Definitely. Yeah. A beautiful thing. Well, we are beyond time and I'm so grateful. I could have riffed on so many other spaces and places. And like I said, I'll ensure that my favorite podcasts are included in the show notes because going into deeper detail, specifically in the book is incredible. And I think that your first time being on the New York Times bestselling list is really, really special. And should you go to write another book, I have no doubt that you'll be back on that infamous list. Yet your first time is the first time. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Yeah definitely wasn't counting on that in any way. It was a really nice surprise. <laughs> oh, the best surprise. I want to ask you, what's your next favorite surprise? And that's not the direction we're going. Well, what I really want to know is what is going to make your heart beat faster in 2023? And it's the last question. And we wrap every podcast with this. Oh yeah. Reinventing my relationship with Jesse for sure Aww. is the thing that is already making my heart beat faster and new love and leaning more into myself. The thing that's going to bring the most tests and challenges is going to be navigating this momentous shift with my partner of 23 years and doing that in a way that is kind and respectful, but also keeps open like enough separation and space where we can grow as individuals and into new loves and things like that. I just don't think I'm going to be able to coast through any of that. I think it's like a very active process and I need to be on. Well, if anyone knows how to make their heart beat faster, I think you've done it and for more than 23 years. So here's to the next 23. And I'm excited for whatever you will share with us, Lauren. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, hey, before you go, 
You know, listening to podcasts on this thing called the internet, it's a wild ride. And what would be so helpful on our wild journey is if you would be so kind to jump on and give us a review. Four, maybe even five stars. It really helps. Thanks for joining us.